Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Uh, this this time we got a highly, highly requested guy, a guy who's always fun to have on. He's a hoot. That's Tim Knight. Tim, how are you doing, man? Hello. Hey. <laughs> you can shout out. Hi. Hello. Oh, Hello? man. <laughs> see, see what the listeners don't know. <laughs> I, I missed you, man. I got you. I got you. No, we're here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, as I said, Tim is quite a hoot. Oh, my uh, God. Oh, you want a hoot? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
got Mr. Tim Knight on the phone. <laughs> Man, Tim's been pulling our pulling our chain for the last 20, 30 minutes, asking like we had audio issues. <laughs> <laughs> Which some of it was the audio issues, but Tim, man, we're excited to have you on the show. We've had a lot of guys reach out about having you on the show, talking turkeys, and I think it's just because one thing, a lot of guys, especially in the southeast, know you to be a turkey killer, uh, and also your style of hunting is really interesting, which we're going to really break down. But also, just you have a really uh, fun following. A lot of guys really follow along with what you're doing. And to be honest, your deer podcast you did with us, the deer episode was fantastic. It had a lot of great responses from it, uh, which was really, really cool. But they kind of jumps off, Tim. Can you give us a little rundown? If people don't know who Tim Knight is, uh, give us a little background of kind of, first of all, where are you from? Where do you kind of live at? And kind of what's your background when it comes to turkey hunting? Oh, boy. Well, to kind of give you the whole spiel, I was born a Methodist preacher's kid. So, you know, we're sprinklers and not dunkers like the Baptists, and we don't get to stay in a spot very long, about three to four years. So I I lived in quite a few spots up till the time that I got, you know, grown and got to be uh, 19 years old, and I decided I'd just I'd get out on my own. So I got married young. And anyway, and... I was working a state job, and then I decided to start piddling in taxidermy in 1975 when I was in high school. I pretty much I begged my daddy to order me a set of lessons out of the back of an Outdoor Life magazine because it was such a hush-hush trade back in the mid-'70s that taxidermists wouldn't let you go into his shop and watch him work. That was just taboo. Wouldn't do it. And uh, anyway, just to make a long story short, I've uh, I've uh, I was introduced to bow hunting as a senior in high school at Blecker County High School in Cochran, Georgia, by Mr. John Bubba Dykes. And uh, from there, just grew a passion for the sport. I mean, I still was like everybody else back in the day. When bow season was in, I bow hunted. And when gun season come in, I hung up the bow and went to gun hunting. And then uh, I very well remember the last time I took my rifle deer hunting was in 1985. And I was sitting in a white oak head in Wilkinson County. And a nice wide, 17-inch wide, six-point walked up there and started eating acorns. And I cocked the hammer back on that Marlin 336C. I had a 3x9 Tasco by 40 on it. I put the crosshairs on his shoulder, and I said, dang, I could kill that deer with my bow. I let the hammer down and laid it in my lap, and that was the last time I took it. And that was in 1985. And then I started bow hunting turkeys full-time in 1988. So, uh, and then the taxidermy business has been great to me. Uh, 1990, I was named the best all-round taxidermist in Georgia. 1993, I was named the best all-round taxidermist in the nation at the Nationals in um, uh, Virginia at the NTA convention. Um, this past, well, you know, they didn't have the NT- NWTF convention this year because they canceled it. But last year, I was fortunate enough to compete in it and won best of show and best of category in the master's division. And then just a great, great surprise was presented to me uh, this past weekend in Macon, Georgia, at the Georgia Taxidermist Convention. I was inducted into the Georgia Taxidermist Hall of Fame. That's a, yeah, I was about to bring that up, that uh, you just got inducted to that. That's a huge honor, so congratulations on that to you. And I've seen your work, uh, this past season, you did work on uh, on what looked like a hybrid between a, a hooded uh, or a, a, a merganser and a uh, and a wood duck. Is that right? A hood duck. A hood duck. Yeah, a hood duck. Yeah, a hood duck. 
Yeah, that, that's pretty amazing. If one of these days I could ever kill me a Drake Pintail, I'd be sending it your way because uh, you do awesome work. So congratulations on that honor, man. That's that's quite the achievement. Yeah, I was I, I wasn't expecting it, man. I was just I, I was taken aback by it, and because um, I mean we're pretty much in. I'm pretty much you know you, you look at it from a history standpoint, and they put me in there with the you know the pretty much founders, you know of the Georgia Taxidermy Association when it was formed back in, I think, 1980. And there's only a handful of people in it. And um, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a hum- it was very humbling, let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, Tim, I want to kick over to your journey as a turkey hunter <clears throat> and how you got into archery hunting for turkeys. That's something that you don't see, I guess – there, there's a growing, I guess, community of archery turkey hunters, it seems like, but it's still nothing like what you're seeing with guys taking shotguns. So what got you into hunting turkeys with a with a bow, and, and how did you kind of go about doing that? And then also, how did you get into archery hunting for turkeys without the use of a blind? Uh, because I find that very interesting, very fascinating. Back in 19, I guess it's 1985, I think. It, well, I'm pretty sure it was 1985. I went to a turkey banquet. And uh, a fellow that was there that I highly respected, as you know, he was an old, wise turkey hunter. His name was Mr. Tom Fisher. He was from Blackley County, uh, Georgia, which is Cochran. And that's where I graduated high school from. And I just kind of sauntered up there to him. And I had had it in my head for a while. I was going to try to kill a gobbler, you know, with my bow. And no, nobody was doing that back then. And uh, I told Mr. Tom, I said, I'm going to try to kill me a wild turkey gobbler with my bow with no blind. And uh, he looked at me just as serious. And I'm expecting him to say, good luck, pat me on the back. You can do it if you try. And he said, son, you're wasting your time if you're trying to kill a wild turkey gobbler with a bow and arrow and no blind. It's, it can't be done. And that just kind of lit a fire under me that I'm like, if you ever known me personally, the best way to get me to do something within reason and within the law is to tell me I can't do it. And... Uh, because I faced a lot of that coming up as a preacher's kid. And I, I think the reason for that was was the only youngins I could play with was the deacon's youngins at the Baptist church. Now, Tim, one thing that I'm real interested in uh, when it when it comes to bow hunting turkeys uh, is just the fact, like, I'm curious about how different it is from gun hunting. Like, you know, with deer, you know, gun hunting is so different because a lot of times you have to think so much harder about that setup and where you're going to go and and how you're going to get that critter to come within you know a reasonable bow shot of you i mean how does that play into the turkey hunting thing i mean how much deeper do you have to go in your calling and setup and concealment and everything when it comes to bow hunting turkeys you you it's not it's not as difficult as you know it was difficult to me to start with because i was a greenhorn i'd never done it before and i was it was a you know it was a trial by error experience for me and I didn't kill my first one with a bow until 1988. And uh, But once I killed that first one, it, it got easier after that. And I kept trying things. And, you know, no telling how many people were laughing at me when I put that ornamental ivy on my bow and on my hat. So when I sat down, you know, it looked like a bush. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to come out. I wanted to hide. I wanted to be a three-dimensional, you know, camouflaged bush to where the turkey wouldn't recognize me as a threat. And boy, that that was a huge game changer. In fact, not that I ever would, but if I was to go back to gun hunting, I would put that ornamental ivy 
on my gun and out the end of my barrel, and I would never sit out in front of the tree again. I'll sit behind the tree or beside it. Because when you sit out in front of that tree, you have just silhouetted yourself to everything in the woods. If you move, you're going to get picked off. I mean, it's just that simple. Especially trying to shoot a long barrel gun you got to swing or if you got a build cap. You know, you may not realize this, but in the Vietnam War, you weren't, you didn't wear a build cap in the jungle because if you did, when you turned your head, a sniper would pick you off and kill you. That's why they wore that boonie cap that had a little brim all the way around it with elastic so you could take natural foliage and stick it in your hat so when you turned your head, it wasn't as near as conspicuous as a build cap. I want to I want to get into every bit of that. I, I really want to get into concealment a little bit later um, because, you know, again, bow hunting turkeys, I mean, you just got to take it to the next level. But one thing that I'm, I'm curious about is like going out there and actually finding the turkeys and getting on them and getting a shot on a turkey. So, you know, before we hopped on here, we were talking about, uh, you know, you, you referred to some of your style as like, you know, running bow versus running gun because you're bow hunting. What, I mean, what is a morning like for you in the turkey woods where you're going out and, and listening and trying to find a turkey to hunt? I mean, how, how does a normal hunt go for you? Okay. Number one, I've scouted the area. Okay. Got to do your homework. You got to find out where the turkeys want to be. And uh, that's, that's the, you know, and I don't get hung up in the goblin because, you know, just like we were talking earlier, you'll go to places sometimes in the mornings and it'll be just, it'll be church quiet on Monday morning. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. And then you go back that afternoon and there's a big gobbler out in the field blowed up with a bunch of hens. Well, well you know, well, where was he at that morning? Why didn't he gobble? You know? And I know tons of guys that ride around in their truck and try to get a turkey to gobble. And if he don't gobble, they just leave. You know, they don't, I, like I say, I'm a turkey hunter. I'm not a turkey caller. I'm both at some times, but I don't get hung up in the goblin. If you see gobbler tracks around a field or an old logging road or in a clear cut with strut marks, he is coming there sometime during the day. And, you just got sometimes you got to have the patience of Job to wait him out, but that's that's kind of been my 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 thing. Now, yeah, do I love to hear him gobble? Absolutely, love to hear him spit and drum. But my scenario is is kind of like comparing it to deer hunting. You know, you hear guys say, "Well, uh, it, 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 if he don't if he don't gobble and strut, and I can't, and I don't call him in, I don't care about killing him." And I said, I asked him, "Do you deer hunt?" Yeah. I said, well, the next time a big buck just happens to walk by you and you ain't grunted him up or rattled him up, don't shoot him neither. Oh, no, that's totally different. I said, how is it different? I said, you're a deer hunter and you're a turkey hunter. You know, believe this or not, but a piece of fried wild turkey, when you bite into it, you're going not going to say, boy, that one tasted kind of quiet. Versus, boy, boy, this one tastes like he gobbled his head off. And I don't have anything against guys that want to do, you know, bow hunting or hunting in general is a, is a personal type thing. It's, uh, y'all hear my gobble in the background? That's my ringtone on my door. <laughs> I think I got a trespasser. Anyway, but yes, uh, you, just, you just can't get hung up on that. You got to, you know. I, I'm not going to say I kill them any way I can kill them, but, but if it's legal, I've had turkeys that won't gobble, 
and I've just had to deer hunt them. I just had to sit there and wait on them, you know. And that's uh, it's crazy. I mean, it's just people. There are people that's they're setting their ways, and I'm I'm like this. You hunt with what you want to hunt with, how you want to hunt, when you want to hunt, as long as it's legal. You know, we all in the same boat. Some of us might be in a canoe. Some of us might be in a, you know, a souped up bass boat. Some of us might be in a luxury ocean liner. But we all in the same boat. You know what I'm saying? So, Tim, one thing I think that's important for us to touch on right now is what has your success been like uh, since you kind of got into doing this? Um, especially with that kind of challenge of what it takes patient-wise. And we're going to break this down of kind of how you've, you know, become efficient as a bow hunter without using a blind uh, for wild turkeys. But, you know, what's your your success been like, and how long did it take you to really, for it to click, for you to start having more uh, consistent success? I'll say it took me, because, you know, back then the limit in Georgia was one one gobbler. And then a few few years later in the – I believe it was right, maybe about 1990, the limit became two. And then a few years later, the limit is what it is now, was three gobblers per year. And, uh, but I've just, uh, you just got to be tenacious at what you do. You got to have a don't give up attitude uh, about something, you know. It's kind of like that old saying, it's not a shame to get knocked down in life. It's only a shame if you stay there. You know, get knocked down six times, you get up seven. My my particular way of hunting, I like to do like everybody else does. I'll go early in the morning, and I'll listen for a bird to see if he gobbles. If he doesn't gobble, then I'm going to go to where his sign was if I'm not there already, and I'm just going to set up, and some people call it blind calling, but like I said, mentioned before, a lesson I learned, I don't prospect call when bow hunting. Because it's done, it's cost me in the past, and I've just learned that lesson. I don't call to a turkey until I'm set up. Now, I may get up later and move to another spot, but there again, I'm going to get set up before I call. Because if he cuts you off and he's 100 yards and he's going to start coming, you don't have time to get set up. And that's one thing I'm really interested about is, again, kind of the, the added, uh, I guess, steps you could say uh, for getting set up with a with a bow versus a shotgun it sounds like there's a little bit more steps involved with that so you have to really i guess think about your setups and think about how you're going to set up on a bird before you just you know plop down against a tree and just you know start calling um so that's what let me ask is that well, here's wrong? the thing what i was gonna say is that wrong no but what this is what you need uh to successfully bow hunt turkeys in my opinion you need a a vest a good quality vest that's got a back rest built into it so you can sit with comfort anywhere. You don't. You're not relying on a tree to lean back against. Okay. Plus, with that rest, with that back rest vest, you can sit behind the tree. You can sit in a clump of briars. You can sit in a ditch. Anywhere you've got just a little bit of cover. And believe this or not, I have actually sat out in the wide open where I'm just the bush. I just use my bow for cover. With that, you know, I got a good quality real tree leafy suit, and I throw old Bill a plug in there, and I put the ornamental ivy on my bow and on my hat. And when I set that thing in front of me, as long as the bird's straight in front of me, I can draw my bow, and it will not spook him. He may look at me, 
And he'll go, oh, that's just a bush moving. And he'll go right back to what he's doing. I've done it time after time after time. And that's the one thing that's real interesting. We're going to talk a little bit more about setup and everything. For anybody that's interested in doing this, but one thing I'm very curious about before we kind of break down, you know, your setups and, and talking about like your setups like for your equipment and stuff, what is the steps you go through if, again, you find a bird, maybe he's burning it up on the roost. You know, say it's, you know, a few weeks into the season, uh, you know, bird, you know the uh, gobblers are all by themselves, uh, hens are starting to nest, you know, you got a bird, he's burning it up on the roost. How do you go about, like, how, depending on the setup, and I know the habitat terrain, all that plays a factor, but are you someone that you're going to try to get to the spot where you think he's already going to go? Or are you just going to put uh, put your butt down uh, in an area where you have a, a decent little spot to kind of, I guess, hide the hen and, and get tucked up in a tree or something and then just start working them once you get set up? I mean, kind of what's your thought process when you got a bird just kind of burning it up? Here's my thought process on that. It all This is all going to come back to scouting. If I hear the bird gobble in the morning, okay, I know he's there, so I go where his sign was in that area and I set up. Now, is he going to come there first thing? He may not. He may he may fly down with some hens. He may go the other way. So now i got a choice. Do I want to circle around and try to get ahead of him? And, or, or do I want to just sit right there and wait him out? Most of the time, if it's a wood setting, I may I may choose to move and try to get ahead of him. But if, I, if I'm in a logging road or something that's leading to a food plot or a clear cut or a field, I'm happy right where I'm at. All I got to do is just wait. He's coming. He's going to be there. It's 99% of the time, sometime during the day. He's going to be there because I've seen his tracks. I've seen his strut marks. And turkeys are pretty much creatures of habit. They roost, fly down, you know, strut, display, circle around, feed, go to roost. You know, it's, just, it's, it's, really, it's really not rocket science. It's just you got to have the patience, you know, if you can, if you can stay there and hunt, you know, that's that's it. That's the key. And you're talking about how much scouting plays a factor for you. And it, it seems like you're just trying to locate birds. I'm Kind of walk us through, just as a little heads up, you know, we got roughly eight days or so as we're recording this before uh, opening morning in Georgia. Um, of course, U season's coming up this weekend. But by the time this episode drops, which will be on Monday, U season had already been in for a day or two. When it comes to scouting, are you just trying to listen for birds, figure out these roost sites where they're at? You're going to go in there like mid-morning or afternoon just to see what the sign's like and then figure out your game plan for if a bird is burning up in this spot, how you're going to set up on them come season? Well, see, there again, it's like I talked here. I don't get hung up in the goblin so much. You know, and I don't, you know, you got guys now, you know, have you been to listen yet? I said, no, I don't go listen. Well, what do you mean? I said, because I could go this morning and that bird could be burning the woods up. And I go stand there opening morning, and I don't hear nothing but, but crickets. I, I just don't do a whole lot of preseason going and listening because the birds will move on you. I, I like to go, and I'm, I'm going to go to a spot where I think there's going to be a turkey. But I just don't go and, you know, to go, you know, because you're going to have enough mornings, you're going to be getting up way for daylight anyway. I don't want to get burnt out before it gets here, you know. And I'm sure you've all done this because I've done it many times. You go one morning, he gobbles his brains out, okay? And you brag to this guy, said, I got him figured out. He he gobbled great this morning, but he was with some hens. I'm going back there in the morning and get on him again. And you go back the next morning, and guess what you hear? Nothing. Woods are quiet. Same conditions. Might be a bluebird morning, high pressure. 
they ought to be gobbling their brains out, but you don't you don't hear nothing, you know. So what do you do then? You get back to the truck and go home, or do you you trust your scout? Go set up in a spot and hunt. Every outdoorsman understands the importance of a great knife, and we all appreciate U.S. craftsmanship. Bladeswork Unlimited has created a community of bladesmiths to provide you a custom knife that will last generations. Whether you're looking for the perfect knife to use in the field or a new addition to your kitchen cutlery, Bladeswork Unlimited has you covered. Check out their online inventory of custom knives or work directly with one of their 25-plus custom bladesmiths to build your dream knife with the Build a Blade program. Start by choosing your blade style, steel type, and handle material, along with everything in between, all the way down to the sheath. Speak directly with the bladesmith building your knife to fine-tune your exact wishes. Jacob and I both own custom knives and have experienced the benefits of custom work with attention to detail, and Bladeswork Unlimited provides that to their customers. Use the code SOUTHERNOUTDOORS, all one word, at checkout to receive a discount on your custom order. Visit bladeswork.com or go to the link in the description and get a knife tougher than you. If you live in the South, you get to rifle hunt more than pretty much the rest of the country. With all that rifle hunting can come a lot of damage to your hearing. We all know we need to be protecting our hearing when we're gun hunting, but the use of traditional hearing equipment is not ideal. That rut crazed buck might only give you a split second to get a shot off through the pines, which is never enough time to get your hearing protection on. We all know a suppressor is ideal for that situation, but buying one has always been a long, difficult process until Silencer Central. Silencer Central is the creator of a revolutionary process which silences headaches and hassles. The process is simple and makes sense. It's a process that begins with paperwork without the work and ends with Silencer Central delivering your silencer right to your door. That's right, right to your door. They take care of the government paperwork for you and then send you your silencer when it's ready. Sound too good to be true? Well, learn more about Silencer Central's easy buying process at silencercentral.com or give them a call at 888-988-8179. So you said something there that kind of piqued my interest, um, and, and you said that you want to go to a spot where you think there's going to be turkeys or where you, or where you know there's going to be turkeys to scout. Uh, when you're setting out to go find that spot where there's going to be turkeys, I mean, what are you looking for to actually – you know, locate the general area before you go in and actually scout. You know, what do you look for on a map or anything like that to go out there and say, like, okay, there ought to be turkeys in this area? I walk roads and look for areas that all, you know, that all, you know, that are turkey habitat. And a lot of people don't know how to recognize the toenail holes, you know, of turkey tracks in hard ground. They'll walk along there and, you know, I'll say, well, there's a gobbler track right there. He said, I don't see a track. I said, let me show you right here. I said, see where his toenail punched a hole in the sand right there and right here and right here? You see that makes a triangle? I said, that's a gobbler's track. And then when they get to looking at it, they say, oh, man, I see it now. I never would have thought that was a turkey's track. I said, well, you know, if they're walking in soft mud, you know, anybody can see a turkey track. Or, you know, if it's if it's soft sand and they leave a track, you can see it. But you got to know how to, you got to know how to read the sign, you know? Well, so, like, when it comes to, you know, going out and finding them, are you like driving roads and, and just getting out and walking randomly? I mean, what, what kind of timber do you look for is what I'm getting at. I'm walking. I'm, I, you know, and turkeys like edge too, you know, um, just like we got some new clear cut areas and, and turkeys love a new clear cut, but it's only going to be good for a season, maybe two before it grows up to where they won't go out there, you know, because of predators. So I walk logging roads, just anywhere that I feel like a turkey would travel. Um, you may have a spot on, on a hunting club or something 
follow roads that lead to food plots because see like you know most of us we plant in our fall plots it's mostly oats and then rape or turnips well see when those oats start to mature they start to head out later in the season and those turkeys will come out there and they'll come out there and strip the heads off them oats or they'll come out in the food plots to display for the hens they're going to come out in open areas and, and, and display and strut for the hens Going back to sign, you mentioned those tracks and, you know, walking these roads and finding tracks. Out of all the different kinds of turkey sign, you know, is there like a hierarchy that like one kind of sign that's like real important to you versus other kinds of sign? Or are you just looking for any of it in general? I like to see them lines in the sand. I like to see them strut marks. Can, can you explain strut marks to the listeners? Well, it's, um, I guess to put it in a nutshell, if you took three or four number two pencils, and you put them side by side with a rubber band, and then you took those and drug them through the dirt at an angle, you'd have like four or five thin lines, you know, on on two sides, and they're going to be about 14 inches apart. And that's just what we call it lines in the sand, you know, and that's, uh, that's, that's, that's what I love to look for. Because you know a gobbler's, you know he he's in the breeding mood and he's strutting with some hens, or he he could be out there just strutting right by himself. I've seen that before. So outside of so well, when you're looking for strut marks, are you looking for a place that's like real torn up with them, where it seems like he's been hanging out there a lot, or is just you know a, some lines do, going down the road fine? That could be a food plot, or it could be just walking down the road and strutting. You know. But the thing is, he's a creature of habit. If he's come down that road one time, he's going to go back down it again because, you know, you're you're pretty much in his breeding area. So what about other kinds of turkey sign? Are you looking for, like, a, a like a lone gobbler? Like, if there's a lot of hen tracks around, do you kind of ride it off and go look for one that's alone? No, I'm, I'm looking for – I don't care if he's got hens with him or not. I mean, that, that doesn't bother me because, you know, I use a gobbler decoy, and that's a – that's that's pretty much death to a turkey because just like we talked about in the deer podcast, you know, deer and turkeys are the same entity but different times of the year. In the summertime, you see bucks in fields and bachelor groups are all buddy-buddy. In the fall of the year, you see hens and poults, jakes in bachelor groups, and longbeards in bachelor groups. But you swap the season around to where it's breeding time and they set pecking orders in turkeys bucks put out paw marks and rub lines and set marked territory same with a gobbler and if you infringe on that territory it's, it's going to be heck to pay well i was going to say when, when when did it click for you to start using a gobbler decoy well this was back in the early 90s and being a taxidermist i said you know what i said i'm just going to take i'm just going to take a mounted gobbler decoy that's all i'm going to take and see see what happens and, uh, man, after I did that one time, I was just hunting with a, basically a stagnant standing gobbler decoy. I mean, no movement to it whatsoever. And when that other gobbler stepped out in that field and saw that decoy, here he come. He ran, he came on a dead run from probably a hundred yards away and I shot and killed him. And I did that. I hunted that way for many years. Until one morning, I was sitting in the river swamp in a bunch of palmettas, and I called up a gobbler, and he walked right by me and didn't see my decoy, 
because it didn't have any movement. It was just stagnant, and he never saw it. So I had to brainstorm. I said, you know what? I need to make that decoy move so that, you know, if the gobbler comes up, I can just, you know, because a gobbler's going or a turkey, he's going to pick up movement quick. So I went to the shop that day and rigged me up a turkey fan and put it on a hinge with a bungee cord and some fishing line. And I said, okay, let's try this. And boy, was that a game changer. I mean, it was a game changer. I could pull that tail up on that gobbler to get his attention. And it didn't matter how far away he was, he's coming. Because you done upset him. You, you, you're you strutting, basically, you're strutting in his territory or his strut zone. And he's not going to tolerate that competition. Exactly. And one thing I think we ought to uh, preference and say is, you know, you hunt a bunch of different like, you know, hunting clubs and leases and stuff like that. You know, I don't know about you, but I personally wouldn't recommend, you know, especially guys in the southeast to be using a, a strutter decoy on public land if you're a public land hunter. Um, that's one of the reasons we don't run decoys. But for your style of hunting, it's something that's really interesting to be able to kind of implement that along with the bow, add some movement to your setup, and draw that attention away from you up against a tree or a brush pile or briars or whatever to that, that decoy. Yeah, it, it does. It, it takes the attention off of you. But, you know... It, and, you know, you got naysayers and everything, and I've heard people say, yeah, you couldn't kill them birds if you didn't have that gobbler decoy. And um, I'm here to tell you, if I didn't do anything but sit behind a tree like a ninja and deer hunt them, I'd, I'll, I'll kill just as many turkeys without that decoy as I will with it. Because, you know, you got to have woodsmanship. And that, that, that I just... uh. I kind of take that personal. Does it make it easier? Yeah, because it just it takes the attention, you know, off of anything. Because he's got tunnel vision when he comes in there and sees out of the gobbler. He really does. It doesn't matter what kind of sport you're in. If you are consistently successful at that sport and some people around you aren't, then it's going to create animosity. And I think that the, the common term for it now is haters. You're going to have haters out there. That's just because they're not willing to put forth the effort, or it might be the fear of failure. That's that. That's what I think it is, because you've got guys that they're more interested in being able to brag on what they've killed, you know, to their gun hunting buddies. And i got nothing against gun hunting. I did it. I think it's a great sport. If you want to hunt with a gun, that's fine. And, uh, but... I'm like, I wanted to take, you know, the, the next the next challenge, which, you know, was bow hunting turkeys, and that just turned out to be a passion for me. It re- it just is. That's that's what I and, – and I don't mean this to sound arrogant or egotistical, but it wouldn't be fair for me to go back to gun hunting now, not from what I've learned from, from bow hunting. It just it, – it wouldn't be a challenge to me. Let's put it that way. Wouldn't I, it just wouldn't. Yeah, of course. And, you know, one thing we're going to talk a little bit more about is this kind of – overall like setups and stuff and kind of a little bit more details about the actual uh, bow hunting setups and again what you like to look for how you like to set up on a tree how you like to set up on birds but before we do all that i'm really curious to learn a little bit more about you when it comes to like your calling preferences you know what is kind of your style of calling uh especially when you know your setup takes a little bit of time just to be able to get you know everything placed exactly the way you want it what is your calling strategy? What is your calling style? And how does that assist you and help you, uh, you know, be successful in your style of hunting where, you know, patience is, is critical? I, I, I'm, I'm, basically, I'm basically a yelp cluck per man. 
and with more emphasis on clucking and purring. That's just that's just I don't call a lot. Um, once I get a bird coming, then I usually don't. I, I I make him find me, you know. And then of course me using that gobbler decoy, you know, as soon as I spot him, then I put the movement in that decoy, and then usually he sees the decoy and it's over with. Then he's he's fixing it, you know. Does it does it work one hundred? Um, no, but it works 99.9% of the time. Let's get into a little bit more on the calling. Uh, you just kind of mentioned something that about, you know, when you know he's coming, you'll you'll start to do these things. Well, a couple questions about that. Uh, first of all, you know, what are you doing to, like, get a turkey's attention? Like, are you doing, like, any yell, loud uh, yelps or cuts at any time? And uh, also, how do you know when that bird is coming? You know, what about his demeanor changes that lets you know that he's probably walking towards you? Well, see, that's the thing about it. You know, you, you know, there, there is a such thing as a silent gobbler, and I've dealt with a bunch of them. You're sitting there clucking and purring. You ain't heard a thing all, I mean, all afternoon or all morning, and all of a sudden you hear And now you're in panic mode because you heard him spitting drum, but you don't have a clue what direction that came from, you know. Or you're sitting there all quiet, and you've been calling, and you hear now you're going where's that at where's that you can't turn you, know, you, you gotta you just gotta you, you, you like i say you got sit there still until you determine where that's coming from and that happens a lot you know like i say you know you're not always gonna call and the turkey's gonna gobble and gobble and gobble as he's coming in and they're gonna come in silent a lot of times especially in the afternoon he's just gonna show up and uh but you know, without ornamental ivy and all on your bow and in your hat, I mean, you can get away. I, it's even amazed me how much movement that in past hunts I've been able to get away with. And um, I, and I have people have asked me before, so how close have you ever been to a wild turkey? I had one day I had a wild turkey hen step across my legs going to the decoys. She literally stepped across my legs and i was squinting my eyes up like a chinese man going don't see me don't see me don't see me she walked right by me stepped over one leg over the next leg and went to the decoy <laughs> that's kind of crazy so one thing that i'm wondering about is when it when it comes to you setting up on a bird i mean you know if you get a bird to answer you and and he gobbles at something that you throw out are you just going to stay in that one spot you know, for the remainder of the day? Or are you ever, like, picking up and, like, moving on a bird several times before you kill him? It just depends on how I read him. You know, if you, uh, let's just say I sit up and call him one gobbles, okay? And then I call a little while later, he sounds like he's in the same place. Well, that's where the patience things comes in. There's been, Daniel tells how many gobblers get bumped every year because the guy has not, doesn't have the patience to sit there and wait to out he just don't and he'll get up to move and the bird's coming he ain't gobbled in a while and then the guy bumps him and he may bump him and not even realize he bumped him and he's like well he just quit gobbling well he may not have quit gobbling he may have been coming and you walked out there and bumped him and shut him up well what about um when when you're throwing out calls i mean are you ever just walking around trying to strike a bird or are you like going to a spot that's a that's what I was talking about earlier. I don't, I don't, I don't ever call to a turkey until I'm set up. 
because you can strike a bird. If he's 100 yards and you shot gobbling, you sitting there, you, you just walking and calling, well, you got to put the decoy out and you got to go find a spot to sit down. You got to hide. You got to get ready. You're going to make noise doing that. And most of the time, if you if you strike one like that and he starts to you immediately, you're going to bust him before you can get set up. I, I always set up and then call. It's not like with a gun to where if you strike him, you can just plop down. You can't do that with a boat. You got to find you a little. You got to find you a little bit of cover. That's what I like to do, either behind or beside a tree. And being I'm left-handed, I like to put my right shoulder up against, or, or I like to point my right shoulder towards my decoys. Because being left-handed, that's the way I'm going to need to shoot. And I guess I've had turkeys come up on my wrong side. I've had them come up on my left side, and being left-handed, I've got one or two choices. I can try to move, or just wait and let him make the move and go to the decoy. And then I'll make my move. Now, one thing, Tim, you were talking about earlier, which I'm really interesting about, or interested in hearing more about, is how you implement blind calling. Uh, we actually, on this past week's strut report, uh, we had Mr. Scott Ellis on. He talked a lot about blind calling on the strut report, uh, which turned into a little mini episode. And it was just really interesting, to kind of get his thought on there because he has a lot of success, or a lot of, oh my God, I can't talk, a lot of success using blind calling uh, in a bunch of different places, a bunch of different states, public, private land, and this works for them. What is your strategy for blind calling, especially a day when birds just aren't talking? It's like, like we said, not to sound redundant, but I just go set up and call. And uh, if I don't have any success within 45 minutes to an hour, I'll get up and move several hundred yards and do the same thing. And either I'll call up a bird or it'll get dark, one or the two. Blind calling is, is you know, you got you got to have confidence, you know, that every time you call, the bird's going to start coming. I mean, you you got to have that confidence. You can't sit up there, you know, and be like bad luck slip right. What am I doing out here? I mean, I I'm wasting my time. I'm just going on to the house. It's just it's all about you know being patient and being able and to you know to sit there and and having confidence. In that area, and that all that a lot of that comes right back to what we talked about earlier. As the scout, you know, if there's turkey sign in that area, tracks and strut marks, there's turkeys there, you know, and you just you got to wait them out sometimes. So Tim, something that you said um, is, you know, you're you're going to get in those spots, and you said, you know, I'm just going to set up and call. Well, you know, with with your amount of experience, there's a lot that goes into that setup in the, I guess, like kind of in the background of your mind, you know, stuff that you've learned over the years where someone newer might not understand what all goes into that setup. So what are some of the finer details of a setup, you know, that makes a spot where you can kill a turkey versus a spot where you will not kill a turkey? Being able to see. Um, don't, don't, don't handicap yourself um, to a spot, you know, to where you've got no vision and, and you know, cause, I, I like to set, since I'm using a visual tool like a decoy, I need the turkey to see the decoy to be effective. You know, without seeing the decoy, you're not going to be near as effective, if that, if that makes sense to you. I like to sit in logging roads where I can see up and down the logging road in a clear cut, you know, where I can see the entire clear cut or whatever. And then you got to, you know, something that's hurt me before is... uh. 
you got to know where the sun is because I had something happen several years ago. I killed a gobbler on the third shot. And the reason being was when I set up, I set up in a, in a field. And as the sun was going, as the sun was, was getting lower in the sky, I didn't realize it, but it was right in my face and right in the way the turkey came from. And when I tried to anchor to aim at that bird, the glare from the sun blinded me from my sight. And I missed him the first two shots. I got two shots, and he wouldn't leave. He was just so content on whooping that decoy. But I finally, on the third shot, he moved enough, and I, I turned enough to where I could get that glare off my sight, and I killed him on the third shot. Yeah, see, that that's the exact kind of stuff that that you know I'm wondering about. And you keep mentioning over and over afternoon hunting. Uh, is afternoon hunting something that you you do quite a bit of? It is, and, and I'll tell you why, because I'm, I'm self-employed. I'm a taxidermist by trade. If, if I go hunting in the mornings, then all I can do is think about the workload I've got ahead of me that day. You know, is, is the phone ringing? Is somebody at the shop waiting on me? But if I go in early in the mornings and get my work done, then I can hunt in the afternoon and I can enjoy it because I've gotten my work done for the day and I don't have to worry about work till the next day. If that makes sense to you, same way with my deer hunt. Well, we're—I want to talk more about that. That's something that's going to be really impactful, and a lot of, kind of the meat and potatoes of this episode. I want to talk about the afternoon hunting because a lot of guys struggle. I struggle in the afternoons personally, uh, and I think a lot of guys just rely so much on the vocalization of a of a gobbler on the limb gobbling that if they don't have that moment and they don't get a bird to gobble within 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, they're packing home, they're leaving. They don't hunt the afternoons. Um, especially guys I know that hunt public land. Public land in the afternoon, it's like a ghost town in most areas. Um, that being said, I'm, I'm very, very interested in kind of knowing a little bit more about this because I remember when we, we when we had you on – uh, about your deer episode, you talked. You said the exact same thing with the deer episode. You loved hunting afternoons because you get your work done in the mornings, go hit the woods, you know, get out mid early afternoon and get set up and you know kill bucks in afternoon hunts, which is uh, you know something you had a lot of success with. So I'm really interested in hearing more about turkey hunting in the afternoons and what's the difference again, just from being an experienced turkey hunter. Is there a different approach to how you approach an afternoon hunt versus a morning hunt? The turkeys are more apt to come to a field in the afternoon than they are the morning. Always have been, always will be. And if you go to a field and, you know, like here, you know, the farmers are fitting to start tilling the fields, getting them ready to plant. And there is no better time to hunt those fields for turkeys than right after they've been hired or right after they... Because the turkeys like to come out there in that new ground. They like to scratch around. They like to dust and all that, you know. And plus, it's wide open. It's clean. And them gobblers love to get out there and display for the hens out there on that clean dirt so yes yeah, there's a lot to it and um i just i, I like the afternoon hunting are, are the turkeys as vocal no you know you you might get one to gobble in the afternoon and you might not but there again I, i'm you know there again not to beat a dead horse i'm a turkey hunter not a turkey caller although i can do both well, that's one thing that's interesting. One reason why we're talking to you, you know, you've been very successful doing that style of hunting. And I want to talk more about this kind of the afternoon style 
uh, and what you just talked about versus, you know, morning hunt where you're trying to strike a bird off the roost and, you know, trying to find a vocal bird and kind of just playing your cards. Afternoon, it seems like, like you're talking about, this natural habit of a bird of, of turkeys, they're going to try to go to an open area where there's a fresh cutover. Um, I guess probably in, in timber country, maybe big mature pines or big mature hardwood river bottoms, stuff like that is a little more open in the afternoon, bugging around and dusting. Uh, or, you know, any kind of ag field um, or, of course, you know, cattle pasture, stuff like that, they're going to be more apt to do that in the afternoons. And that's where I can see definitely the implementing of a decoy along with your setup makes perfect sense for that because you're hunting a more open area. The birds are a little bit less vocal in the afternoon. And using that visual aspect along with some subtle calling to really lay down uh, the right kind of scenario for a gobbler to come in there, which I find is very fascinating. And that makes a lot of sense now kind of hearing that from you. Well, and I use a technique that I call flocking them. And it's no different than setting up for, for, for ducks. You know, you put out a bunch of decoys because that, that gives them confidence. There have been times I have put out as many as six or eight decoys in a field. If I've got time to get there early enough in the afternoon to set up, and you talking about a confidence builder, you know, gobbler steps out there, even if he's got hens and he sees another group of turkeys, he's like, hey, you know, he's like, excuse me, ladies, I'll be right back. Well, he's all, he, he's right about anything except the be right back part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and see that's the, the kind of interesting thing about afternoon hunting because I, again i think a lot of guys struggle with it now it's a little bit different you know compared to like you know where me and andrew hunt there's not very many fields at all where we hunt just because the public land doesn't have that but if you guys have a you know if you're on a if you're on a club you're on a lease you're on your family farm that has even little green fields it seems like that could be a perfect place to be able to kind of stage at or in our situation find these fresh cutovers, which I mean, I'm talking like a bare fresh cutover from uh, probably in December when they kind of cut these winter cutovers. There's not a bunch of cover out there, but definitely you see a lot of uh, turkeys coming out and, and dusting around the edges and stuff like that, and it's a perfect spot for them to kind of come out to more opening um, and kind of use these same tactics. Again, a little bit different just with a decoy spread and everything, but a guy on private land that really knows who's out there and kind of has a little more control of that sounds like a really interesting way to be able to hunt, especially these guys that are a little bit more interested in getting to archery hunting without a blind uh, for turkeys. <clears throat> let's just back up a second. You know, let's just say that you're on a piece of property that's all timber, okay? My strategy for there would be is to find the longest, straightest right-of-ways on that property. Maybe there's a power line going through. Maybe it's just an old logging road that winds through the timber but it's got an area where it's straight for 100 yards. That's where I want to be. I want to put my decoys in the logging road because it's visual. Turkey steps out in the road anywhere he can see them. You know, so that that would be my strategy for that top terrain. But there, but if you have food plots, that that you know, I I would definitely concentrate on the food plots. Uh, if you have cutovers, that's another great place. Or if you have ag fields. That's another excellent place, you know, to catch turkeys. And also, this seems like a really good way, especially if someone's trying to get their kid into hunting, uh, you know, turkeys, you know, they want to implement a blind or just implement a spot where they can kind of take that um, that movement away from the kid so he can get, get a little bit more kind of uh, settled behind a gun but have a visual aid out there, kind of having that decoy. Uh, just even a kid with a shotgun trying to get them their first bird, I can see this being very effective in hunting the same kind of style where you're trying to get set up in an open area, which is different from like what we've heard from some of our other guests, uh, which set up in a different way. They kind of quote-unquote hide the hen, but they're not bow hunting for turkeys. 
Uh, it's, it's a different scenario there. So this is something I find very interesting and can apply to multiple other kind of styles of hunting or, you know, kind of ways of turkey hunting than just somebody going out there with a bow. I mean, again, if you have a young kid or just somebody that wants to hunt, uh, even with a shotgun, with your decoys and want to have that same experience, you can do the exact same thing uh, in some of these different kind of rideaways, um, which you find very common down here. Timber company, uh, Timberland in the southeast, you're going to have long uh, fire breaks. You're going to have long uh, logging roads, uh, course pipelines, gas lines, um, and, you know, uh, power lines. Of course, you're going to find that in the timber. So there's a lot of different options there. And of course, if you're in ag country, it's a totally different game there as well. Uh, but what else is kind of important to kind of note on and hit on for afternoon hunting that maybe somebody should take into consideration, especially if they are getting close to maybe like a roosting site as well? Yeah, I mean, you can set up close to a roost uh, if, if, that's, if that's your preference. But to me, I, I would rather be, and, and roost is probably going to be over water. Uh, most of the time, uh, not always, but most of the time. But I, I you know, I, I being a bow hunter, you know, I I want to be in an area where I can see. And you know, believe it or not, it's amazing. You know, turkeys can hang out in some really really thick places. I mean, I've I've hunted some properties where turkeys come out of, of planted pines, and I'm like, what in the world are they doing coming out of there? But sometimes what it be his girlfriend has got a nest in there, and they'll crawl in there like a rat sometimes. You know, I've, I've seen them come out of briar beds, and I'm like, and it makes you scratch your head like, what is that? What is he doing coming out of there? Yeah, that's funny. That brings up uh, this time me and Jacob were hunting in uh, Oklahoma, and there was a lot of wheat fields around there, and this wheat was, I mean, over over our hips. I mean, it was probably almost chest high. And we couldn't figure out where these turkeys were gobbling from. And finally, we found out that those turkeys were just wandering off into that wheat and they were eating that wheat. And when they got done eating, yeah. they would just fly straight up out of it to get their bearings because they didn't know where they were when they were in the middle of that stuff. So it just goes to show that they'll hang out in more thick stuff. But you keep uh, mentioning cutovers. Are you talking about like a one or two year old cutover, like very young sage grass, like still slash all over the ground, that kind of stuff? You're from a, you know, from a very fresh new clear cut, you're gonna have a maximum of a two year window to hunt it. First year is gonna be great. Second year it's gonna be grown up a good bit. Third year you're probably gonna be out. And because uh, like around here, if they don't spray it, you know, if they don't replant it in pines and spray it to kill everything, you know, green in it, when it naturally regenerates within a year's time, you're gonna have milkweed and you're gonna have volunteer, you're gonna have devil's walking sticks and briars, and it's just it's you know there's turkeys that they won't use that now. I mean it'll 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 be an impenetrable jungle. The hogs will take it over if you got wild hogs. They'll, now they'll live in it, and uh, you can't even get to them. We deal with that all the time around here. So now. When it comes to just like kind of sticking on uh, habitat and and you know trying to find turkeys and everything, uh, do you ever do much hunting in like real hilly country or is it more flat? Uh, well, it's flat here, but when you get up in Tennessee, if you stay there long, one leg will wind up being longer than the other one. <laughs> so does does any of these From kind of tiny hills? Oh yeah, yeah, it's a. Uh, there's places in Tennessee it's straight up or straight down. <laughs> does that have a yep. big uh, impact on how you hunt these turkeys? I mean, does it change things uh, as far as your setups? Not really, because most of the time, you, you know, 
there again, less like in Tennessee, you gonna you're gonna have uh benches and saddles and you're gonna have little meadows and you're gonna have fields. You know, you're gonna have ag fields at the bottom of these hills that's you know, nothing but hardwoods and that's where the turkeys are gonna roost and there again, you know they're gonna come to that field sometime during the day. Mm-hmm. So you just set up in the fields at the foothills and, and wait them out. Tim, one thing that I completely forgot to ask you earlier when we were still on calling is what you know, you're a big fan of the subtle calling, the clucking and purring and everything. In that case, and scratching and leaves for that matter, in that case, can you overcall with those kind of calls? I mean, let's say that you have a turkey coming in and he hammers a cluck. You know, should you keep calling or do you just shut up? In my opinion, if the turkey's coming, there's no need to call. I mean, he'll. it's amazing how a gobbler can pinpoint you. And I think the late Mr. Ben Rogers Lee, probably said it best he said you can be in the bottom of a 10-foot well and make a call to a turkey and he'll answer you he might be 200 yards away and he can just about walk up there and stick his head over in that well and see where you at they can pinpoint you that well yep and see i never thought about this either but ben rogers lee and i and, and he's i've proven this if you can hear a turkey gobble he can hear you call. Now, I've sat there in myself, and I'm going, I've heard a turkey. He just, you barely, it's like, ah. He said, that's a turkey. And you call, you know, fairly loud, and you have a long break, then you hear, ah. you like, there ain't no way that turkey heard me. And the next thing you know, when he gobbles again, he's closer, and then he's closer, and then he's closer, and then he's, then he's in your pocket. You know, and I'm like, how in the world did that bird hear that that far away? So, Tim, one thing I want to get into, and we're going to come back to some more of this, but you talk a lot about woodsmanship, and woodsmanship plays a huge factor in how you deer hunt. And also you talked about early on this episode how woodsmanship is a big factor in you having success uh, turkey hunting. What about woodsmanship is something important for somebody to know, and what are some of those highlights that maybe, you know, a lot of people maybe overlook, but something that you always do day in and day out that's all about woodsmanship? Oh, man, yeah, that's, that's opening Pandora's box. I mean, that's a uh, – woodsmanship is, is the ability to ba- basically, you know, become one with nature and your surroundings. You understand the life cycle – of the different animals you hunt, like turkeys and deer or squirrels or whatever, whatever game you're chasing, the woodsmanship is, you know, it can be anything from being able to survive, you know, in a situation to where, you know, you may have to build a fire to keep warm. Um, it's it's just uh, <clears throat> not to get off. It's kind of on the same subject, but you just think about today. How many people do you think could fend enough for themselves to provide a meal for their family if they went to the grocery store today and it was closed? Well, they say, well, I'll go to the convenience store. Well, it's closed. Well, they, they go to a local food mart, you know, not the big supermarket. It's closed. Well, they ain't got nowhere to buy any food. So now what are they going to do? Well, they're going to do one or two things. They're going to have to be able to provide food for their family or they're going to go hungry. And I'd be the first one to tell you, I ain't beyond sitting down eating a big old plate of fried robin breast. That's kind of one of my grandmama Smith. That was one of her favorite things, that and squirrel. Or she came up through the Great Depression. And those people back then, 
you know, hunting was it, it was a mainstay. It, it wasn't. It was a. It was a necessity. It wasn't a. You know, hunting kind of today is just kind of like a luxury, you know, for some people. But in a way, <clears throat> you know, if you go to the grocery store and you can't you can't buy any supplies or any food, how are you going to feed your family? And that's where the woodsmanship comes in. And that goes back to when you were telling me I was a, you know, I was a Cub Scout and a Weeblow and a Boy Scout. And we learned all those things, you know. Um, they don't teach those things in school anymore. You don't, you don't have, uh, like when I was at Blecky County High School, I had a, a forestry class. And we learned all kinds of survival skills. And we learned all our trees and all our, you know, all the wild things that you could eat, you know. In, in an emergency situation and there's man there's a ton of people today that at the grocery store closed up they, they they're in a mess you know they they do not know how to provide a meal for their family you know unless they can go get it at the grocery store and that's a fact and i mean woodsmanship and kind of knowing the, the lay of the land you scouted you understand how turkeys move on the landscape that you're hunting that's part of something that's helped you be you know the turkey hunter that you are and that woodsmanship helps you put yourself in the right positions understanding you know the body language of turkey kind of coming in and just having the overall experience to help put birds on the ground and, and put some meat on the table as well um, and I think, like you said, a lot of people overlook the whole atmosphere of woodsmanship. You know, you hear some people talk about it, but that's the one thing that, you know, me and Andrew, it's kind of our goal is to become a good woodsman. Not just a good hunter, but a good woodsman. And a good woodsman, uh, I, I know a handful of them, but compared to just deer hunters and turkey hunters, woods, being a good woodsman is, is a different category. It's so much more than that. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and – and, Basically, the woodsman, woodsmanship boils down to this. It's being able to read sign, no matter what kind of critter left it there. Being able to look at some droppings and say, well, that belonged to a such and such. Or or see tracks, and you know, that's a track of a such and such. And that, 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 that's kind of along the same lines of woodsmanship. It's just, it, it's being able to, uh, you know, recognize sign and read it. And then using that to your advantage to to pursue and harvest the game that you're after. Oh, exactly. And I was going to say, Andrew, Andrew could actually edit some of this stuff out if he decides this doesn't need to stay in the podcast. But if not, uh, I know Andrew was telling me uh, back when uh, he was in school at, at Auburn, uh, there were some guys in the uh, forestry department there, or forestry whatever there yeah, yeah school for forestry there and uh that didn't know what what deer droppings looked like and, and they had deer hunted yeah, for a long time they didn't know what deer sign looked like and it's like mm -hmm. this dude has hunted you know supposedly their whole life but just sitting green fields and just nothing against that style of hunting but hadn't learned anything about the actual animal itself and the sign it left and these dudes are you know 19 20 years old and, and mm -hmm. don't know They're what big deer hunters droppings. big hunters yeah and, and they just don't know those simple things which is kind of scary uh, to think about, but it's like I guess the, you see you don't see that on television. And people, if they watch outdoor television, there's nothing out there talking about about hey, it's good to be a good woodsman. It's good to learn these subtle things that oh, you know, you know, learning how to read deer tracks and learning how to read sign and understanding the the way of the land and how habitat can funnel deer and funnel game through different areas. You don't see that on television. You don't see a whole bunch of people talking about that. You just see a lot of kill shots. And it's like that goes missed. And you see, especially a certain generation now, where it's like woodsmanship is not part of the the uh, discussion for them. It's it's absolutely just killing the animal and whatever it takes to kill the animal. That's it. But the idea of woodsmanship, which is kind of me and Andrew's generation, is not 
not critical. It doesn't seem like, you know, they didn't grow up trapping. They didn't grow up uh, just spending a lot of times in the woods, that kind of generation. Uh, and it's kind of scary to, to think that, you know, there's guys out there that just don't know some of those subtle things uh, that should make any good outdoorsman and hunter. Well, exactly. I mean, it's uh, wood chip plays a huge role in, in an outdoorsman's life if you're a true outdoorsman, you know, and it's, it's you, you have to educate yourself. You know, it's just like nowadays. I mean, you pick up, you can pick up these iPhones, and you can look up bear track, and there'll be hundreds of pictures on there of a bear's track. You know, you can look up grizzly bear track or black bear track or bobcat track or whatever. But back then, back in the day, if you didn't have a mentor or somebody that's been down that road to teach you and pass that knowledge down to you, you know, you didn't get it. And there's so many kids nowadays that don't. And, you know, it's it's just like this generation we're in now. You know, everybody thinks that they can they can uh, learn how to work on a computer and everybody's going to get a job that pays them six figures a year. No, nobody wants to do the manual labor work anymore, being a mechanic or, or, or such as that, you know. And uh, that, that, that's that's not good, you know. You you know it's it's like they were saying you can be educated and you still be an idiot. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> I've met a lot of people. Oh, like that. dude, listen, I, I know a handful. Oh my goodness. Um, and you know that, that I kind of got, got book sense, but I ain't got no common sense. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I kind of get off this soapbox, and I, I could I could run on it for hours just talking about this, but um. Kind of getting a little bit more back to turkey hunting. I want to talk a little bit more about kind of like your setup. If there is anybody out there that's just curious on uh, how to add more concealment to their setup, whether they are truly bow hunting and they want to try bow hunt without a blind for turkeys, or maybe they just want to add more concealment to what they're doing, you know, with their shotgun uh, and their setup with that, you know, kind of walk us through. You, you talked a little bit about your ghillie suit and your ivy. But can you describe a little bit more in detail? How do you set your ivy up, like on your hat, along with your bow, and how could somebody do that to their own setup if they want to add a little bit more realism to, you know, their overall just attire? Well, you 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 can buy the ornamental ivy at any any reputable florist. Um, they'll have the ornamental ivy on wire, and uh, then you can use the wire to attach it. You weave it in and out of your limbs on your bow. Uh, you attach it to the hat and you can use zip ties or you can use twist ties or whatever you prefer. You can use electrical tape, put it on your boat. Um, <clears throat> but the, the ornamental ivy, in my opinion, w- w- was the biggest game changer as far as being able to get, you know, the biggest thing in bow hunting turkeys is getting drawn. I mean, that's the whole, that, that, that's the whole ball game right there is being able to get drawn. And, uh, next to the ivy, is going to be to buy you, even if I was a gun hunter still, I would have me a good quality vest that's got a back rest in it so I can sit anywhere in comfort, you know. I've got a tree there or not. I can sit wherever I sit down. It'll be like sitting in a lounge chair. i got back support. Because I can tell you, even at, just like at my age, and I turned 60 in January, you go out there and sit in the yard with no back support, and it ain't gonna be but just a minute. Your back, you you gonna be you gonna be squalling. You like, man, I gotta I gotta move, and I can't sit here very long like this. You know, <clears throat> that would be the two major things: is the ornamental ivy on your boat, ornamental ivy on your hat, good quality, three um, D leafy suit, 
and uh, the backrest vest from us. And there's several on the market now. Yeah, now, I, that's the main thing. I've got one of those backrest. I've got a it's a uh, Alps Grand Slam. It's just the 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 brand and model that I have. Um, and bought actually at NWTF, and it's got the the back supports on there, like the the little kickout legs and. Dude, it is awesome. I mean, there's so many yeah, spots, like especially yeah. like if you're hunting with a buddy and you have like a shooter, and then you have like a secondary shooter or someone filming. That secondary guy yeah. having that vest is amazing because you huge. can get off the tree or just behind the tree and get tucked up in a spot where you don't really traditionally you wouldn't have any back support, but it allows you to sit very, very still and, and comfortable too. I actually really enjoy mine. The only downside I see to it is just the weight. But I mean, then again, you're just running around the vest. I don't know how much the vest probably weighs. It probably weighs seven, eight pounds. Um, but you know, it's it's not a big deal, especially if you're just you know carrying your shotgun or whatever in the woods or your bow. But uh, definitely, that does make a big difference for sure. Um, and one thing I'm, I'm now, if you want, mm-hmm. if you want to add the next degree of difficulty to bow hunting with a bow or bow hunting turkey with a bow and no blind, is carry a video camera with you and video yourself shooting a gobbler with a bow with no blind. I I can't attest 100% to this, but I think I was the first person that ever did that just because it had ever been done before. Oh, exactly. Yeah, we got a our buddy uh, who's been on the show a couple times before, Mr. Jordan Barnes from Macon, Georgia. Uh, I know you were a big influence for him doing the same thing. He's been bow hunting turkeys without a blind for quite a few years now as well. Uh, and he, but he's much he's much younger than you, uh, and he kind of got into the whole filming thing as. I well remember. Yeah, I well remember the day that Jordan walked into my taxidermy shop, introduced himself, and he said, "I want to learn to bow hunt turkeys like you. Will you teach me?" And so I took him under my wing, and um, he's he's become a pretty proficient, you know, turkey bow hunter himself. Oh yeah, and anybody, I'll give Jordan a little shout out right now. Anyone wants to check out his, he's got some cool videos, and I'll let you at the very end, uh, of course, uh, I'll let you plug your information as well because I know y'all film, and I think it's Genesis Bow Hunter or Bow Hunting, and we'll go over that in just a little bit uh, at the very end. But Jordan's episode, or Jordan's, I guess. Um, uh, channels is called the close proximity tv on youtube and he's got some cool hunts up there travels around a bunch of different states but it's just amazing because i've hunted with him um in person uh, in georgia and uh i was carrying a shotgun and he had his bow with him and just to watch him and how he would set up in spots it, it just blew me away but again with that ornamental ivy kind of get tucked in especially if you're hunting areas with privet green or uh, privet and greenbrier that ivy blends in. It is unreal how well you just like disappear in the background. Um, so it, it, yeah, you can sit up out of tree, and you know you just you, you disappear. I mean, it's just you look like your surroundings, and that's uh, that's the whole point. You know, you know, a gobbler or a turkey's biggest, his best turkeys can't smell. Their best defense is their eyesight, and a lot of people don't realize this, but if it's a real, real windy day. Or if it's a rainy day, and I don't like to hunt in the rain, but, you know, I have just because I got caught in it. But on them super windy days, turkeys are going to go to the openest spot they got because they got to use their vision for protection because they can't hear in high wind. So they'll go to a big field or a clear cut and hang out in it until it gets roost time because they everything in the woods is moving so much that, you know, it, it, their their defense of hearing is down, and that's you know next to their eyesight, 
their hearing is their second defense. And you're talking about their first defense is, you know, eyesight. And, you know, a question probably a lot of people are thinking about is, how do you get drawn back on a bird? And, and can you maybe walk us through? Because Jordan showed me what he's done, and it's not like you just rip the bow back most situations. So, I mean, what? how do you get drawn back, and how do you, you know, set yourself up to be able to get a shot, you know, shooting off the ground? The best advice I can give to you is sit on the ground flat of your butt and be able to draw your bow slowly and methodically back to your face. If you have to raise your arm to get leverage to draw your bow, turn your poundage down. The trick is to be able to draw straight back to your face, slow and methodically. And I've done this more times than I can remember, but I have literally drawn my bow with turkeys 10 yards. They look at the movement but they don't recognize you as a threat because you're not a hard-edged object like a guy sitting there with a long barrel gun or a hard edge on a bow and hard-edged camouflage to where it can pick you out as non-natural movement. You can get away with so much with that ivy on your bow and in your hat. I've just done it so many times, you know. Oh, yeah, of course. And that's why I was curious because I know that's what Jordan Jordan was telling me. He's got two bows. He's got one for deer, one for bow hunting, or one for deer hunting, and one for turkey hunting. His turkey hunting bow, I forgot what poundage he draws. I think it was like, and again, apologize, Jordan, if I get this wrong. I think it was like 50, 52 pounds, something like that he draws for turkeys, but he can draw back. And Jordan's a really fit dude, and he can draw it back, I mean, super slow. And he demoed it for me when I was hanging out at his house. Um, and again, that super slow movement—you're coming all the way back, and it allows you to be able to get settled without having to make any kind of jerky, you know, herky-jerky moves that you see a lot of guys do when they're trying to pull seventy plus pounds. I shoot fifty pounds for turkeys. What I shoot? And see, money, money—that's all you need. And plus, a turkey is not a huge animal. Uh, now, another thing I think a lot of guys are going to ask is uh, broadhead steps. And I know you got your broadhead company, and everything. Uh, but what kind of broadheads? If a guy's looking to get into, you know, bow hunting turkeys, just traditionally, if you're just going to hunt turkeys with a bow. What style broadheads do you like to use? What did you use in the past, and then how did you develop your broadheads to really work for the style of hunting that you like to do for hunting for uh, turkeys? Well, that, that's kind of a long, long story. I was a paid Muzzy Pro staffer with Muzzy Broadheads for probably close to 20 years, and Muzzy never had an expandable broadhead. And, of course, I bow hunted turkeys back then using the Muzzy. I would tie I'd take a treble hook and cut the odd hook off of it, which, you know, on a treble hook, you got one of the hooks that's actually soldered on there. But I would cut the odd hook off and leave two hooks, and I would serve that on my shaft right behind my broadhead so it would impede or keep the broadhead from going completely through the turkey. So, you know, the arrow would actually act to keep him from being able to fly. And then as expandable heads came along, which they did so much, tur- so much tissue damage, I was actually building bipolar behind the scenes and and pitched it to muzzy um so they would have a broadhead to sell in the springtime because their broadhead sales were just absolutely dead except for just a handful of people that were going to shoot bears in canada and um the way the bipolar came about was i pitched the broadhead to them and you know they were all for doing it and uh, just to make a long story short, they asked me, well, what do you want in return? Because I had showed them the video footage of the birds that I had killed with the prototypes I built. And uh, the the furthest any one of them went, one of them crow hopped three times and fell dead, and the other two fell dead in their tracks and had all this on video. And that broadhead was originally going to be called the Muzzy Nightmare. And it was going to be named, you know, it was going to be spelled like my name with a K, K K-N-I-G-H-T. 
Well, as luck would have it, right after I pitched it to them, uh, Michelle and the family decided to sell the company, so they sold the company to Faradine Corporation, and Faradine Corporation owned Rage Broadheads. So that pretty much told me right there that they may give me a little money for it, and they were going to take my idea and throw it in the trash because it was going to be too much competition for the Rage. Well, if you'll notice now, there are multiple companies that are understanding the benefits of a hybrid head, which is what bipolar is. It's fixed and an expandable. But to go back and answer your question, no matter what company you choose, I highly recommend using a hybrid broadhead with a large cut for turkeys, no matter whose company or whose you use, because you have the toughness of a fixed head but you have the hemorrhage capability of a large expandable, and that combination is deadly. And I've proven that time after time after time, and not just on turkeys, but on hogs. And on I mean, I've killed some notorious boar hogs with some very, very thick shields, you know. And, um, I'm, you know, you can watch some of those hunts on my son's channel. If you want to jot this down, it's Genesis Archer. It's like the first book in the Bible, Genesis Archer. And then he's got an older channel that's got a bunch of hunts on it, and it's called Duckman, D-U-C-K-M-A-N, 2288. And those, both of those channels are on YouTube. So, again, you like that hybrid style. I mean, that's kind of how you develop, you know, bipolar. Um, you know, kind of talk about – I want to talk about just a little bit more of kind of like the performance on turkeys. Uh, again, you like that kind of the toughness of that fixed blade, but you like the hemorrhaging of that expandable. Why is that important for you, especially when it comes to hunting turkeys versus maybe just using like a small fixed blade? Here's the thing. Believe this or not, a turkey is much more dense than a deer is. Not as dense as a wild hog with a shield. But if you think about it, a deer in the rib cage area is not a very tough animal. It doesn't take a whole lot to penetrate that. But you take a gobbler, this broadside, and you try to shoot through his wing, and he's got those real thick primary feathers and secondary feathers, and then he's got that big bony breastplate that runs through the center of his body. He's a whole lot tougher than people give him credit for. In fact, there have been instances where if a guy was shooting just a straight expandable head the arrow would hit the bird in the wing butt and bounce off because it could not penetrate those thick quill feathers in his wing and the biggest advantage of a hybrid head just like bipolar is with a trocar tip trocar tip will penetrate those hard wing feathers and that fixed blade continues to open the wing wound channel while the expandables are coming back, so your expandable blades are not doing all the work by themselves. It helps open the wound channel for the expandable blades to create the hemorrhage. Even bipolar, if you take the fixed blade off and shoot it as a two-blade expandable, does not penetrate near as well without the help of that fixed blade. That's just a fact, and a lot of companies are understanding that concept now. Now, also, just with that setup and everything, and when you're shot, can you talk about like shot placement on a turkey? Uh, I think that's something that's interesting we ought to talk about, especially when we're talking bows here. You know, what kind of shot placement are you looking at versus the different positions that turkey could be in versus strut, not strut, quarter strut, half strut, and also whether he's facing uh, broadside, facing away from you, facing towards you, kind of like what kind of position do you want to hit him with? The best, the best 
advice I can give anybody out there without showing them on a on, on a on a mount or a decoy or a bird, always try to shoot the bird broadside. You don't want to shoot him in the back. You don't want to shoot him in the beard from the front because if you don't paralyze him, he can fly. If you shoot broadside, then you got a good chance of taking out a, a wing or a hip or, or, or vice versa on the other side. You're going to take out a wing and a hip. And if you do that, then you've immobilized the bird. Believe, <clears throat> believe this or not, <clears throat> if you shoot a bird and don't paralyze him and he can take flight, if that bird only lives 20, if you kill him, let's say he only lives 20 seconds from the time you shoot him, he'll fly to where you can't find him. Now, you might say 20 seconds don't seem all that long, but if you'll sit there and time your watch for 20 seconds and you think how far that bird can go, and if he gets above the tree line, you don't know if he's going left, if he's going right, if he's going straight, then it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Call the tracking dog. <laughs> I always shoot the bird broadsided. I try to. Quartered is good. Doesn't matter if it's quartered to or quartered away. That way you got a chance to take out a wing and a hip. Or, you know, it, basically, if you can take, if you could chop both his legs out from under him and make him land on his breast, he can't fly. A turkey has to jump to fly. That's how he gets air under his wings. So, I've had a couple of times I have shot the bird's legs out from under him. And there wasn't nothing wrong with them except I broke both their legs and it knocked them down on their breast and they they couldn't get air under their wings to to take off. Well, that's kind of interesting, especially about that. And I can see how having that big fixed blade or, or that that fixed blade and then having the expandable uh, you know blades as well, kind of with the bipolar broadhead, uh, can be really effective, especially taking out those wings because you have a little bit more surface area, but you also have hopefully get a little bit more penetration with that as well, especially if you just smack that wing bone. Absolutely. Well, you, like I say, you have the best. You know, you got you got the toughness of a fixed, and then you got the hemorrhage capability of a large expandable. Yeah, and that's I, in any hive. If anyone's ever again gutted a turkey and looked how thick that wing bone is, um, it, it, it's actually kind of amazing. Um, and I can exact, I can yeah. really see how, especially you know, you're shooting a lighter poundage bow, probably a little bit lighter arrow setup, depending on everything. You know, with a big expandable or something, you squared up on that sucker. I, I can see how that could either bounce out or just not get all the way through the, the, the cavity itself, and then you have a lot of birds running off. I'll be honest. I've watched a lot of videos on uh, bow hunting turkeys, not from, like, you guys or anyone else, but I've seen some videos on, on bow hunting turkeys, and guys take the shots like what you were talking about where, like, it's a facing two or facing away shot and not hit them in the back where they totally paralyze them, and they take off flying and running and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, and then they're ch- trying to chase them out of a field. Um and that, that's, yeah. probably, that's probably the biggest thing that I see where a lot of guys are like, man, I'm not going to hunt turkeys with a bow because they see all these horror stories of guys shooting them and they go for three, 400 yards flying and they don't ever find them. Well, here's, let's make this point here. And this, just, this is just due to the sheer numbers of people gun hunting versus bow hunting. Every year, there are more turkeys shot and lost with a gun than there are with a bow, just like deer. There are more deer shot and lost with a gun than there are with a bow. And that's just because the number of gun hunters versus bow hunters in both aspects of deer and turkey, the, the gap there is just huge, you know? Oh, of course. Well, I mean, it is. Well, that's why, again, what I was trying to get at is, you know, taking a good ethical shot. Like you're saying, like you really like that broad that broadside shot, shooting like, you, like you're talking about shooting with one of your broadheads where it's that bipolar, you get the fix and the expandable broadhead. 
you're just doing a lot of damage and you're just trying to take them out right then and there and not have that bird, you know, run off or fly off or any kind of stuff like that where you're trying to chase a bird down. Because, again, I've just seen horror stories. So that's why it's really important to practice your shooting and really make that right shot, which is something, again, was what you were just talking about. So that's the interesting aspect of it. Um, but, uh, Tim, to kind of, you know, kind of wrap us up, I don't know if Andrew has anything else. I, I really did want to talk to you again about the, the whole blow hunting thing, which I think we really uh, were able to take that away. Um, is there anything else that's very specific? Uh, oh my god I can't talk specific uh, to your style of hunting that would be important to, to kind of relay with the listeners or any maybe lasting tips especially for anybody going out there uh, you know come Georgia's opener and Alabama's opener which is going to be on the 20th no I mean it's just it, it, to put it in a nutshell it's, it's, it's do you scouting don't get hung up on goblins be patient just you don't you don't have to be you don't have to be a world champion turkey caller you know if you can learn how to cluck and purr um, and scratch in the leaves, you can kill any turkey that walks, no doubt about it. In fact, you're better off to call less because the average guy, he wants to get out there and he might want to show off to his buddy, well, look what I can do with this call. And he's out there squawking and a yelping and a cutting and just key-key running and all that. And um, I just, especially on, 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 you know, on, you know I, don't, I don't have any private private land i hunt everywhere i hunt i'm in hunting clubs you know i'm I'm in competition with gun hunters everywhere i go and i'm a bow hunter and uh but i still manage to you know kill my turkeys every year and you know a lot of them and that goes back to what we talked with earlier in the show they get hung up on gobbling they get up and go in the morning and step out the truck turkey's not gobbling they get back in the truck and go home you know i'm i'm just the opposite you know, I've you know, hopefully I've done my homework like I should have and he may not be he may not be vocal that morning, but you know, a turkey's not like a deer, he's not nocturnal, he's gonna fly down sometime during the morning, he's gonna stay on the ground until it's time to fly up again. So just 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 trust your woodsmanship and trust your scouting, have the patience of Job, learn to cluck and purr in the woods, and um you can kill plenty of turkeys. That's that's it. That's that's kinda it in a nutshell. Well, Tim, man, we can't thank you enough for coming back on. Uh, I hope we got everything out of you that we needed to. Um, and uh, good luck this season, man. I, I, I look forward to seeing what you get with your bow this year. Well, I appreciate that. And like I say, if you get a chance, um, I'm sure my, my son Josh is going to be putting up some, some turkey hunts on his uh, his channel, which is Genesis Archer. And uh, if you get bored and want to see some good hog hunts and some good previous turkey hunts, um, y'all can pull up that channel and, and watch them. And there's also some on the old channel, uh, duck man, S D U C K M A N two, two, eight, eight. You know, maybe you can learn something from those videos. Cause you know, my son, he's just, you know, the old saying that the acorn didn't fall far from the tree. You know, he uses the same techniques I do. And, you know, he's, uh, <clears throat> actually both my boys have gotten real proficient, you know, in killing turkeys with a boat. But they've gotten to the point where you know they're teaching their buddies how to do it hey everybody it's jacob myers and uh come at you at 12 10 a.m uh monday morning the 15th um probably got some of you mississippi boys about to go out there and hopefully kill a bird in just a few hours about six hours or so but it was wrapping up everything for this podcast it's been a long week long weekend uh had a lot of stuff happen we would be doing a, a outro right now but i forgot all the recording gear at my place um but andrew called in a uh, a long beard for a youth hunter this weekend you will hear about that on the next outro for the podcast uh, but did, we did want to um 
talk about the winner of this week's giveaway uh, with uh, GeoHunt Custom Maps. We've got Mr. Kyle Snook in Florida who has won. Kyle, if you would, shoot us a message, my man. We'll put you in contact and uh, get that map out to you, my man. But thanks again for everyone else who's listening. Thanks to all the new reviews that have been coming in. And uh, we will see you on Thursday's episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Strut Report. And until next time, y'all say something. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman. And thank you to Blackberry Smoke for the music for the podcast. Also, to follow along with us, make sure you check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the Southern Outdoorsman. Until next time, y'all stay Southern. Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, We talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for you, which means you're going to love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are going to be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the Southeast are going to be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are going to be there. It's just, it's going to be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you, it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all going to be there and you, you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it. You're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.